And so a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Immortal Words in the Book of Genesis, Chapter 2 Outlining the First Union There is a great sense in which we find a great tension in the Hebrew Bible. I've been asked to respond to a prompt for United Lutheran Seminary, but the prompt has maximum interest in a lot of contemporary questions inside and outside the church. The prompt points to the Hebrew Bible and supposedly competing portraits of sexuality, marriage, and the family. And the question is, in essence, is or is not these portraits, are these portraits relevant to the lives of believers today? And how can we contextualize these in the concerns and proliferation of so many varied expressions of life in the so-called modern world? What I find remarkable about the question that is asked is it raises, I think, an earlier question lurking behind it. Whenever we turn to the pages of the Bible for a definitive answer on any topic, whether it is one as big as marriage and family and sexuality, you must realize that the Bible itself is not a systematic theology. The Bible is not necessarily a collection of laws alone, though it contains laws. The Bible is not merely a collection of abstract philosophical maxims, although it does contain deep philosophical truth. The Biblios, or the books, is a library, a cornucopia, a kaleidoscope, containing histories, poems, creation narratives, eschatology, prophecy. And as such, it should, in some sense, contain competing and messy portraits of sexuality and of marriage. What is remarkable about the narrative of marriage and sexuality in the Bible is that it doesn't provide a narrative of ideals alone. We mentioned Adam and Eve early in the beginning of this recording. The first married couple in the text fails the mission. If we are to take Isaiah and the portrait of Yahweh as the bridegroom, humanity and the community of the faithful as the bride, we see time and time again the messiness of idolatry of Israel. But we equally see examples like David, Melech, David the king, taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba to himself and committing murder to cover it up. We see examples of horrendous abuse of power. And we find this even in the way in which figures such as Hagar, a, a surrogate mother in the book of Genesis, in some sense is abused by her mistress, the wife of the figure we see as the man of faith, Abram, Abraham. So much so that Hagar is thrust into the wilderness with Ishmael, really in deep risk for their lives. The Bible also raises questions of accusations of sexual assault 
and the story of Joseph contained in the book of Genesis. And it raises the very thorny topic of the question of rights associated with those who are deemed foreigners in a culture and are looking to engage in uh, a married life, as in the narrative of Ruth, actively seeking union with Boaz, but of a Gentile status and seeking to find restitution for her mother-in-law's property in the work of Naomi. We find the messiness, as we find yet again, in the book of Esther and the wonderful work by David Zucker, which we had to read, The Importance of Being Esther, where even the rabbis had a difficulty finding the text of Esther uh, to be canonical up until a point, in the sense that you know we begin the book with Vashti, King Ahasuerus' wife being put aside for refusing to follow her husband's drunken antics. And essentially Esther being thrust into a pageant of women to see which will be an acceptable bride, and then her not being able to approach the king without risk of death towards the end of the work. So there is violence, there are harems, there are concubines. The Bible is more like HBO than it is that of a children's coloring book. It is spicy, it is brilliant, it is savage, it is erotic, it is ultimately the story of stories. And it is a patchwork of stories that all return to two twin bookmarks of the ideal. The first bookmark of the ideal is contained in Genesis with Adam and Eve before their disobedience, where they tend the garden together, where they mutually live in harmony. And it is hinted after the fall at the description of Eve as the mother of the living and Adam being described as someone who is a patriarch. I know that is a word of uh, somewhat disrepute nowadays, but coming from the Latin pater, father, uh, God willing, passing on the wisdom of what not to do to future generations, passing on wisdom. And later, Second Humble Jewish uh, material will expand on that idea. But equally interesting is the very end of the scriptural narrative where, figuratively speaking, humanity, the bride, Christ, the bridegroom, are united yet again in the celestial garden where there is the tree of life and the river of life pouring from it. So this idea of union, this idea expressed in the ideal of Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her, enters into the realm of agape, self-sacrificial covenantal love. And it is that ideal of agape, monogamy, covenantal sustenance, laying down one's life for the other within that union. And in essence, although it is a very thorny topic, particularly in light of uh, trying to discuss this within a Lutheran seminarian context, the fact that the New Testament is very, very clear about the preferred indissolubility of marriage uh, in covenantal terms that appears to uh, many to be sacramental. And 
dealing with, of course, some uh, escape, escape clauses with divorce and Paul over if a disbelieving husband leaves a wife, etc. It is not their fault. And of course, the clause given, I believe, in Matthew, um, you know, in cases of sexual immorality. But overall, this preference to try to work things out to the very, very, very end is a very unique ideal that is being put forward. Um, and it is one which I would argue um, is expressed within the context of women in the New Testament having a lot of say and a lot of authority and power in their own right. Though this is, of course, in the Hebrew Bible, I want to make it very, very clear that the Hebrew Bible itself contains many examples of this, where you have Deborah, a mother in Israel, who is standing up a defense of her home in an agape-like fashion. You have the example that is given of Ruth once more seeking out, like Esther seeking out, answers to difficult situations and having agency. You have the Woman of Valor poem in the book of Proverbs. Uh, you have examples of women also engaging in that laying down one's life for their spouse or for their nation or for their people. So in that sense, although the Bible is messy, there is an ideal that is situated that points towards the sacramental and the covenantal. Now, whether you want to call, therefore, marriage a sacrament or not is besides the point. What is clear is that marriage is understood as a covenant of covenants and the very expression of God's self-revelation to humanity in a sense. Now, to get into the question of non-heteronormative sexualities in Scripture would be itself an entirely other discussion and one that would be far beyond the purview of this brief overview. But what is very, very clear is that time and time again, while there are internal tensions within the Bible, the one element which remains steadfast is that agape sense. An agency on the part of women in Ruth, in Deborah, in Naomi, in Esther. So in despite the fact that Esther might be treated as a tool or as a sexualized object by a ravenously corrupt system that is throwing on a beauty pageant to figure out which of these supposed virgins is going to be fit for the king of Hazuerus. Uh, nevertheless, what is very clear is she rises up through that oppressive system to be a voice of liberation for her people. And so she becomes a kind of Christos or uh, prefigurement of the Savior in the way she engages in her spousal relationship with Ahasuerus and on behalf of her people. The same could be said for Ruth towards Boaz. And the way Boaz, by the way, uses his privileged status as a land-owning elite within the Hebrew culture to redeem the land of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, in order to bring about peace. So is the Hebrew Bible relevant to sexuality and marriage in the family? Oh, yes, it is. It is very much. And the way in which couples engage in a self-sacrificial covenantal bond to lay down their time and their energy for the fulfillment of one another 
and the way in which those couples therefore reflect in that sense the self-giving of God's mercy and compassion on the world and to nurture wisdom and potentially to nurture life in the world. At the same time, too, in regards to the, the complexities and messiness of marriage and divorce, the, the messiness, for example, of David and Michal, uh, his first wife, who was married to another man, by Shaul, by Saul, uh, you get into very deep, and I would describe it as dark water, and one which theologians have understandably debated for many years. Is it relevant in that agape sense? Absolutely. In that high covenantal sense? Absolutely. Is it necessarily a topic that could be minced out by the Bible alone, by sola scriptura? That is a question of questions and really loops back again to what the Bible or Biblios actually is. I would simply argue that while if one wants to hold to a sola scriptura understanding of the question of sexuality, marriage, and the Bible, one needs to recognize that one is still influenced by tradition. It might not be in the Catholic sense with a capital T, but even Martin Luther, even Chemnitz, even the great Anglican divines recognize that with lowercase t, the tradition of the church allows us to better understand and to navigate some of these messy passages in the Hebrew Bible, uh, which deal with the questions of union and with the family. I'd also argue that while the texts of Scripture are often described as potentially patriarchal, and in many cases you could make that case, the very emphasis of figures such as Hagar, Naomi, and Ruth point to, in fact, a quite larger reality, one which should lead us to look more closely at these texts and not simply write them off. As a man who believes in the authority and the, yes, the dirty word, the inerrancy of Scripture, that God, truth, is conveyed without blemish in these words, granted through the messiness of historical situation and granted through the transmission of ages, I would argue strongly that there is much to be learned here, more than meets the eye. I hope that this has been helpful, and I look forward to hearing from all of you very soon.